Well, it's good to be back uh, among you on this uh, good and beautiful uh, day of June 19th, the Lord's Day. It's also Father's Day, not nearly as important as the Lord's Day, but still (laughs) a good thing to think about. And uh, you may not know this, but in uh, some communities around our country, it's also Juneteenth. How many have heard of Juneteenth? All right, bless you, bless you. Okay, so... June something. They don't actually know the calendar day, whether it's the 17th or the 15th or the 19th, but sometime in the 10th of June in 1865, the news hit Galveston, Texas, that slavery was over. Uh, They hadn't heard the news. Uh, uh, Lee had surrendered, what, April 9th, I think, 1865. Another great surrender a few weeks later in Durham, North Carolina by General Johnson. But the news didn't reach Texas for a long time. So Juneteenth, 1865, uh, and the slaves of Galveston, Texas rejoiced. And it is remembered, but not by the right calendar day. (laughs) 18th, 19th, 17th, something like that. So June. Uh, Juneteenth. Uh, Father's Day, of course, a celebration of proper authority. Thanks be to God. Juneteenth, uh, the end of an improper authority. Thanks be to God. And then our psalm today, uh, our focus today on Psalm 2, the celebration of a right and ultimate authority by God the Father Almighty and by His appointed Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus of Nazareth, as he's known to historians, but who's known to us as Jesus the Christ, Jesus our Savior, Jesus uh, the Messiah. So let us then hear uh, of two texts then, Psalm 2, and then a text from the New Testament that quotes it quite significantly, Hebrews chapter 1. And after the readings, there is a response for you to say, printed in the bulletin. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains, throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I become your father. Ask me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron rod. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So for the psalm, and now the New Testament text, one of several that quotes it. Hebrews chapter 1, reading the whole chapter. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you remain the same. And your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The word of the Lord. Well, it's Father's Day, it's Juneteenth, more importantly, it's the Lord's Day. And we are gathered now to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And we see in our text today that human life can thrive, but only on one condition. How does human life really thrive? It only thrives under the authority of the Son of God. Human life can thrive, but only under the authority of the Son of God. Psalm 2 is about that. In our psalm, we have essentially a drama in four episodes. Uh, the, the Psalter version that we sang had four stanzas to it, and uh, it, the stanzas happened to match the four episodes of the drama. The psalm is a song, the song is a poem, the poem is a drama, and four acts to our drama. Shakespeare liked five. Oh well. Five acts to a Shakespearean, we get four. Act one, the world rebels. Act two, God mocks. Act 3, Messiah speaks. Act 4, Poet warns. Let's see it in more detail. The world rebels. Verse 1, Why do the nations conspire? Why do they plot in vain? They rise up against the Lord and against His anointed. Let's break their chains. God mocks. Now, it's not common to think of God sitting in heaven mocking us. It's a rather dramatic image, isn't it? God mocking. And Luther comments in his commentary on the Psalms that uh, all the while, while Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Romans were seeing about the death of the Son of God, uh, 30 AD, God was laughing in heaven. Right, laughing because he knows the rebellion of the 
of, of the world is folly and knows that out of the cross of Christ comes the victory of Christ over the powers of evil, over death, over hell, over Satan. And yeah, over these kings too, Herod and that governor Pilate, over Rome and over everything. Yeah, God is laughing. God scoffs at the rebels in the folly of their rebellion. I have installed my king. Psalm 2. The Lord enthroned in heaven holds them in derision, to use the version from Handel's Messiah. Yeah, God mocks. Unusual image. He knows our rebellion is futile. Act 3, Messiah speaks. Did you notice that we change voices? In verse 1, the poet um, introduces what the rebels will say. In verse 3, we actually hear the, the words of the, web, of the rebels. I said webbles, didn't I? <laughs> Elmer Fudd. Okay, webbles. <laughs> okay, rebels. Okay, the words of the rebels. Let's break their chains. In verse 4, we hear the voice of God the Father on his throne. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And now in verse 7, we change voice one more time. Messiah speaks. What does he say? I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. Now here the Lord is clearly God the Father. He said to me, you are my son, today I become your father. That's a good line for Father's Day. And fathers love to give gifts. What's the gift? In what the Messiah here speaks. Ask me. Here's the Messiah quoting the words of the Father. Ask me, quotes the, quotes the Messiah to the world and back to his Father. Ask me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break those rebels with that iron rod. Yeah, they'll crack like clay pots. All right, so in light of that set of truths... The unshakable throne made of unshakable, unbreakable bone, unbreakable stone, I should say. That throne of the Messiah set upon Zion, the holy mountain. What's the result? The poet now warns. Okay, kings, wise up. Yeah, be wise. Okay, kings, you, you, you revel in your wisdom. You proclaim yourself to be uh, masters of power and, uh, and sagacity, but you are fools. In fact, in the Hebrew text, his verb here, to be wise, is actually a pun upon the word about uh, casting off, throwing off their shackles. The verb to throw off is, um, is shalach, and the verb to be wise is shachal, just reverse a letter. And, uh, and the poet is punning upon the word of the rebellion. Let's cast off their chains, okay, throw off their shackles. That verb throw, just change it a little, the order of letters a bit and revise ever so slightly. And in verse 10, be wise. Saklu. All right, be wise. The poet's pretty good. Yeah, he's Shakespearean in this power. Therefore, kings, be wise. Wise up, be smart. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. And what's the warning? Serve the Lord with fear. Yeah, with trembling. And in the repentance from your rebellion, rejoice in his sovereignty over you, because it's the right thing. And uh, the most striking image in this part of the poem, kiss. All right, now, in our culture, a kiss is typically, you know, romance. You know, uh, uh, husband and wife, okay, boy, girl, maybe their first kiss when you're <clears throat> 15 or something. Uh, I was a little bit later than that. Okay, uh, but, but kiss the sun, and, and it's the sign of political loyalty. 
we actually have images, uh, an image of Jehu, that nasty uh, Israelite king back in the 800s BC. We have the first portrait of an Israelite king on the archaeological record. It's on the black obelisk of Shalmaneser V. A monument stands about five feet high in black granite. And uh, Akkadian text on four sides of that obelisk and various panels of images. And one of the images is Jehu on his knees before Shalmaneser V, the great Assyrian king who has conquered him. And Jehu is kissing the dirt before the feet of his Assyrian overlord. That's the earliest portrait of any Israelite we have on archaeological record. He's kissing the feet of his sovereign. Okay, kiss the sun, says the text, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. And in contrast, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the drama ends that way. Four episodes. Rebellion, God mocks, Messiah speaks, poet warns. And we see within this, uh, this plot line of our four acts that the world either repents or faces wrath. And by the end, as implied, the world, penitent, others punished, but a great deal of the world, penitent, lives again under Messiah's rule. That is, uh, the, the tensions of rebellion uh, are done away with and peace is restored by the rule of Zion's king. Hallelujah. It's like the book of Revelation within one single poem. <laughs> Hallelujah. And by the end of Revelation, right, the, the world is right. It's set right. It's restored. It's renewed. It's refreshed. And by the end of the poem here in Psalm 2, something quite like that. The world lives again under Messiah's rule. Some were judged and cast out of the everlasting kingdom. Others repent and kiss the sun. To kiss the sun in this poem, in this psalm, means to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We all should know that that's the only entry point into the kingdom of God, the redemptive kingdom. To repent and believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus. And the poem anticipates that in its Old Testament way. On Zion I've set my anointed, my Messiah, and put Messiah into Greek, it becomes Christos, and put Christos into English, it becomes Christ. And that becomes essentially the surname of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so the psalm points us very clearly to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. It's the Gospel, Old Testament style. Now some interpreters uh, want to see this, this psalm as, um, as uh, the revolt of one of David's own vassals. That uh, David, of course, you know, became king. You know, Saul proved to be a rather nasty king, and God shunned him away. And on the day of Saul's death in battle against the Philistines, as told on the last page of First Samuel, there's an Amalekite on the battlefield who witnesses the death of Saul and picks up the tokens of kingship, crown and armband and such things, and makes his way 60 miles south to where David is staying near the village of Ziklag in southwestern Judah. And he presents David with the tokens of kingship and claims to have killed Saul. <laughs> How dare you put forth your hand against the Lord's anointed, says David. And 
that Amalekite is put to death for his presumption. But David does take the tokens of kingship and becomes king on that day. One of Saul's only surviving sons, Ishbosheth, puts up a fight for seven years. Civil war between Judah in the south and Israelites in the north. But then two of Ishbosheth's own officers behead the poor man in his own tent while sleeping and bring the head in the bag to David. How dare you? How dare you do such things? And those officers are likewise put to death. But David becomes king now over all 12 tribes and not long after launches a campaign in the whole region and long rules a territory about the size of the state of Pennsylvania. It includes Edom and Moab and Ammon and the Aramean states and uh, all the way north, 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 about 300 miles to the source waters of the Euphrates River. He rules from the border of Egypt to the northern branch of the Euphrates. And it's a vast empire by those ancient standards. I mean, there's no telegraph, there's no telephone, there's no internet. The fastest thing in the world is a man on a horse. Well, take the man off and there's the horse, but there's no message. Okay, put the man on the horse and maybe 30 miles an hour for a while. All right, so to control a vast empire like that is tough. But David ruled it. David becomes what scholars now call a suzerain. Now, a suzerain is a word that arose around 1800 to describe a great king who rules other kings. He allows those other other kings a certain high degree of autonomy within their own states. But they rule by the permission of the greater king. And the ancient or eastern world had a vast network of suzerainties Uh, And so we had the great king, or what one might even call, using the language of the book of Revelation, the king of kings. And under the king of kings, the great king, there were lesser kings who ruled the various city-states and and smaller countries. We'll call them the vassal kings. And we have a whole bundle of treaties that establish this stuff that we've dug up since about 1850 or so. 20-some treaties that we identify as suzerainty treaties. That is, vassal kings uh, swearing allegiance to a great king over them and keeping their thrones, but on condition of loyalty. That, by the way, is how King Herod kept his throne. You may uh, know, of course, of some of those stories of Herod, that nasty fellow, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, who wants to kill all the little boys of Bethlehem to get rid of the threat to his throne from the Son of God. So all the boys of Bethlehem are slain by Herod's order. Around 4 or 5 B.C. or so for that, one of the last wicked deeds of a wicked king. But how did Herod become king? He was appointed by the Roman Senate in 37 B.C. Nominated by a somewhat more famous fellow, Mark Antony, who not not many months later would marry Cleopatra, the queen of a rival kingdom. And Julius Caesar had been assassinated uh, in 44, leaving the Roman uh, Republic in disarray. And the various factions, especially from the Senate, fought each other until 30 B.C. And in 31, Antony lost his great battle against Octavian, Caesar's adoptive father. And when that happens, Herod's in trouble because he's been the ally of Mark Antony, who is now lost. 
And ere long, Anthony and Cleopatra will both commit suicide. Anthony will fall upon his own sword, and Cleopatra will take that venomous viper and allow herself to be bitten to death. That's how they end. But there in 31 BC, Herod, uh, still young and trembling, comes on his knees before Octavian, not knowing whether he'll keep his head until the afternoon. He promises extravagantly soul loyalty to Octavian. And Octavian is soon declared emperor. It's a bit like the Star Wars story, where there's a republic followed by an empire, right? Only there's no time for the empire to strike back. All right, the Roman Republic becomes an empire. And at that time, Herod now is a vassal under a great king, whom the Bible names as Caesar Augustus. That's Octavian. All right, so we have a suzerainty at work in that story. And Herod always has to answer back to Rome as to whether he'll keep his crown as the king of the Jews. Now, there are stories like that in David's time. David becomes the suzerain of a vast empire. Queen Victoria was the suzerain, say, of a, a vast empire. She was the empress of India. She ruled Hong Kong. You know, She ruled Burma. She ruled Australia. She would have liked to have ruled the United States, but we had rebelled. <laughs> yeah, we won that one. All right. But and Vladimir Putin treats Ukraine today as a rebellious state under his suzerainty. That's his description of the war that's going on right now. Now, in Psalm 2, do we have merely a local rebel against David's local suzerainty? And the answer is No. Notice how far Psalm 2's revolt uh, is not describable as simply a local or regional frou-frou. Notice verse 2, the kings of the earth rise up. The kings of the earth. The rulers band together against the Lord. That's the divine name Yahweh in our Hebrew text. And against his anointed, his Messiah. And if that rebellion is not merely local, regional, you know, Pennsylvania size, or maybe just Ammon or Moab or something, neither is the hero of Psalm 2's sovereignty merely local. Verse 8, Ask of me and I make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. That is, the rebellion is worldwide, verses 2 and 3, and the proper rule of God's anointed is worldwide. The ends of the earth, your possession. We are greatly tempted to read the psalm as about David and his suzerainty. But that won't quite work. Now the psalms in general shout the name David, 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 David. No less than 73 times David is named as author of individual psalms. The book of Acts in chapter 4 actually identifies Psalm 2 as written by David, though the text itself does not carry his name. And maybe that final inspired editor of our book of Psalms who puts together in final form these 150 poems and prayers and hymns and liturgies uh, written over a thousand years of time, maybe our final inspired editor decided not to put David's name at the heading of Psalm 2 so that we would not be over-tempted to identify it as simply David, who alone fulfills the psalm. Jesus, 
the one whom historians call Jesus of Nazareth, but whom we know as Jesus the Christ, Jesus, the one and only Son of the Father. Verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. In the Old Testament, King David and his successors are metaphorical sons of God, adoptive sons, but not native-born. Psalm 89 says it this way in verse 27, I will appoint him as my firstborn. Now I've got a firstborn. His name is Nathan. The name means gift. I think you know something of that name over here. All right. Nathan, gift. He's 37. He's not appointed as my firstborn. He is my firstborn. In Psalm 89, David is merely appointed. I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Psalm 89, verse 27. The previous verse, he will call out to me, you are my my father, my God, the rock, my savior. This is the language of adoption, not of native birth. Psalm 2 presses us toward the language of the New Testament. It's quoted by the Father at Jesus' baptismal scene, Matthew 3. Remember the voice of the Father as Jesus comes up out of the baptismal waters? Quote, this is my beloved Son. With him I'm well pleased. Okay, you are my Son. Paraphrase from Psalm 2. We have that psalm quoted repeatedly in the New Testament, almost more than any other psalm. And it's typically quoted of this distinct sonship of Jesus. In Hebrews 1, which we've already heard this morning, verse 5 says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I become your father? No angel ever heard that from the Father. And even John 3.16 makes us think of this psalm. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. His only begotten son. Psalm 2 then tells the tale not of a merely regional empire with a merely regional rebellion and a merely regional suzerainty. It tells the tale of a whole world's revolt against God the Father and against his one and only son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore also tells us the destiny of this world revolt. Verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And for those who do not repent, you will break them with an iron rod. You will dash them to pieces like clay pots. All such revolts must fail. And so our poet, whom we call King David, says this, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. In other words, believe in Jesus Christ, repent of rebellion, and trust him. Now, that phrase, kiss the Son, has troubled translators for a very long time. Go back to 400 A.D. to a cave outside Bethlehem, and there is St. Jerome struggling to put the Bible into good Latin, commissioned by his Pope to do that. And um, Jerome rendered it this way, kiss purely. That is, it's the loyal political kiss of the vassal to his sovereign. Maybe like Jehu there on the dust before the feet of Shalmaneser V, you kiss not with hypocrisy, not with secret intent to rebel, but with a pure political motive of loyalty. So the royal one, you kiss with a, with a loyal kiss. 
That's how Jerome put it back in 400 AD, and the Latin version still says that in the Roman Catholic Church. About a hundred years ago, another scholar thought that some of the letters of that phrase about the sun got migrated to the line above, and that verb about rejoicing. You put together the letters of sun and, uh, and rejoice, and you actually get the combination at his feet. That is, kiss uh, upon his feet, kiss at his feet. And some versions actually published that. I think the Revised Standard did that back in 1952. Kiss at his feet, which is what Jehu and other vassals did. But in 1984, a great Canadian Presbyterian published a commentary. Peter Craigie published a commentary on the Psalms. And I think he solved the puzzle. And here, here's, here's why there's a puzzle. Because in Hebrew, the typical word for son is ben. All right, Benjamin, ben Yamin, son of my right hand. Okay, ben, 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 son. Um, but here, kiss the son, the word is bar. Now, bar is Aramaic, but you know the phrase probably from bar mitzvah. You know, a Jewish boy reaches age 13, has his bar mitzvah at the synagogue, reads the Torah, you know, celebrated as a, as a moral adult. And bar mitzvah means son of the commandment, but it's an, it's an Aramaic phrase. So why is there Aramaic in a Hebrew psalm? And Peter Craigie suggested this, which I think wins the day. That this line is addressed to the kinds of kings that David ruled in his own time. And their principal language was Aramaic. That is, you address the Aramaic-speaking kings in their own native language. Kiss the sun, the bar, and uh, uh, lest he be angry. And your way lead to your destruction. It's a brilliant solution. And so we translate with the tradition. Kiss the sun. I love it. Kiss the sun. Greet God's royal son with your loyal kiss. That's what the text means. That is, believe in Jesus, repent of rebellion, and trust in this unique Son of God. Now, in our psalm, we have one other cool thing that's often overlooked. Are you ready for this other cool thing? Are these things cool? Okay, is that the right word? Okay, cool jazz. Okay, you're a jazz man. Yeah, yeah cool jazz. All right, here's another cool thing. All right, and now when we read this psalm, we've just read Psalm 1 before it. Okay, you're reading through the Psalter? Okay, Psalm 1, Psalm 2. There are at least six connections that join these two psalms together to make them a kind of compound uh, psalm, a kind of set of twins. Or if our metaphor is that the book of Psalms is a great temple, these are the double doors that lead you into the sanctuary, like those back there. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the double doors of the sanctuary of praise and prayer called the book of Psalms. The first line of Psalm 1, the very first word, Asherah Haish, Oh, the blessednesses of the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Asherah, the first word, first line. The last line of Psalm 2 begins with the same word, Asherah. Oh, the blessednesses of the one who takes refuge in him. The first and the last line begin with the same word in our pair. That's remarkable. Second is the verb about um, meditating. Remember how the, in Psalm 1 we, we meditate upon the Torah, upon the, upon the will of God, the law of God, the books of Moses. He meditates upon that law day and night, says the psalm about the righteous person. The verb is hege. 
But like English verbs, sometimes Hebrew verbs have rather wide ranges of meaning. And so, in the conspiracy of the kings in Psalm 2, they are hegaying upon their wicked plots to rebel against the Lord. Same verb, but in antonym meaning. In Psalm 1, it's meditating upon God's word. Hallelujah. In Psalm 2, it's contemplating rebellion in secret plans, conspiring. Some versions say, and that's right. There's also a seated scoffer in both psalms. Did you notice? How blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit. Where? In the seat of the scoffer? And in Psalm 2, the one who is seated in heaven laughs. The Lord will scoff at them. We have a seated scoffer in both psalms. Again, an ironic reversal. In Psalm 1, it's the most wicked of all kinds of people, those who scoff at righteousness. In Psalm 2, it's God himself who scoffs at the futility of the wicked rebellion. Wonderful brilliance in the psalm. It's way cool. Fifth link. In Psalm 1, verse 6, um, all right. uh, the Lord watches over the way of the, of the righteous, but the way of the wicked. And here's the last line of the poem. Perishes. A way that perishes. In Hebrew, derek, way or road, and the verb avad, to perish. And in Psalm 2. Okay, wise up kings. Verse 12. Turn to him, kiss the sun, lest you perish, same verb, in your derrick, that is, in your way. Fifth link. Psalm 1 outlines two ways of life, the wisdom of Torah or the folly of evil. Psalm 2 exemplifies the latter trajectory. Psalm 1 ends with the perishing of the wicked. Psalm 2 begins with that trajectory that leads to the perishing of the impenitent. Sixth link. Both Psalms 1 and 2 have no heading. Now only about 20 or 30 psalms come to us without a particular heading regarding author or circumstance. Like Psalm 3 says, uh, Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Nearly all the psalms in the first set of the soldiers, Psalms 1 to 41, we call it Book 1 out of five books. Nearly all the psalms in Book 1 have a heading linking it to David. Virtually every one of them from 3 to 41, where Book 1 of five books ends. But the opening two have no heading. That likewise links them. So once upon a time, we probably had an early edition of the Book of Psalms that was Psalms 3 through 41, like the earliest little, uh, you know, flyleaf, uh, you know, projection, you know, advanced copy of what became 600 years later, the 150 Psalms. Maybe David's doing that in 980 B.C., something like that. And, uh, and so uh, 3 through 41 all have, or nearly all have, that line about David being the author. Psalms 1 and 2 have no such heading. That links them together in a sixth way. And so Psalms 1 and 2 become the twins that introduce us to the whole book of Psalms. They are the double door by which you enter into the house, the temple of prayer and praise. And what we find then is that 
we can only enter into the proper life of prayer and praise if we have the wisdom taught by these two psalms. What's the wisdom of Psalm 1? The wisdom of life based on Torah, God's revelation. And for us Christians, that's not just the books of Moses. That was the principal canon in David's day, 1000 B.C. For us, it's the whole canon of Scripture, hallelujah, Old and New Testaments. We build our life upon that or we perish. Or we perish. And Psalm 2, the wisdom of life loyal to God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus. If your church doesn't major in Jesus and Bible, your church is in trouble. (laughs) Does your church major in that? I kind of think you probably do. (laughs) Does your life major in Jesus and Bible? That is, these are the great themes in total biblical reading, total total interpretation, Old and New Testaments alike, as our lenses by which to see the individual psalm, the wisdom of life based upon God's revelation, without which we wander, and the wisdom of life loyal to God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus, without whom we cannot be saved. Possess these two themes in your soul, and you enter properly into the temple of prayer and praise. And you can then use the Psalms as your prayer book, as your guide to life. Read and pray through a psalm every day. Feed your soul, making the Psalms your daily meal. Lack these two themes in your soul, and your prayers and praises, if you ever were to utter them, shall not be heard because of your irreverence. But with these themes in our, in our soul, submission to the will of God and divine revelation in the Bible, submission to the Savior, the Lord Jesus, in faith and repentance, then those words from the Catechism prove true. Remember question 23, we recited that earlier today. What offices does Christ execute as a Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executeth the offices of a prophet, that is, he teaches infallibly, a priest, that is, he makes intercession of atonement for our sins, effectively, and of a king. And the, the Catechism says rightly that he does so both in his state of humiliation, that is, his mortal life on earth, and his state of exaltation, that is, his current heavenly reign. He remains our prophet, teaching us the truth through his church, he, uh, especially through the scriptures and by his spirit. He remains our priest because his atoning sacrifice is everlastingly effective for all believers for their entire life and every sin. And we stand then justified by faith in him and of a king. We'll look at uh, question 26 again, or remind yourself of it. We read it. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? I love this answer. It's true. It's not the Bible, but it's true. Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself. If he doesn't do it, it won't be done. But he wills to do it. And so we awaken from our sin and our sloth and what is actually called by the Bible a spiritual death. We rise from it and he subdues us to himself and we love to belong to him. 
He executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. Hallelujah. And in ruling and defending us. Hallelujah. You like that one? And in restraining and conquering all his enemies and ours. So how do we pray then, based upon this psalm, which is in the book of prayer and praises of ancient Israel, and is the earliest and the most important hymnal of the Church of Jesus, this book of Psalms? How do we pray? Well, five things. And these are based upon my first Hebrew teacher's great commentary on the, on, on the book of Psalms. Willem van Gameren, 2008, book of Psalms. Van Gameren taught Hebrew at Geneva from 74 to 78. He's the reason I went into Old Testament studies. I love the man. He's now... 79 and retired in glorious splendor (laughs) and uh, a beloved saint and uh, one of the greatest commentaries on the Psalms ever written. Oh, about 1,400 pages, all in one binding. It's wonderful. And in the comments on Psalm 2, I won't quote it, but I'll paraphrase. He says, pray this way because of this Psalm. Pray for the consummation of the kingdom of Christ. We've done that already when we said, Thy kingdom, what's the next word? Come. Okay, thy will be done where? On earth. Okay, a point I've emphasized many times in these last two or three years. Pray for the consummation of the kingdom of Christ. Thy kingdom come. Number two, thanksgiving that the pagan nations have been brought into Christ's kingdom. Okay, I'm Scottish. I think you've heard me say that my ancestors painted their faces blue, crossed Adrian's wall, and slit the throats of Romans. That's what they liked to do. All right, I think you're Scottish too with that last name. Okay, so the pagan nations. In fact, the Britons of uh, London area back in 500 AD and uh, 800 AD, 1000 AD, thought those Scots would never be converted. They were just hopeless. Yeah, those, those hopeless Scots. All right, but thanksgiving that the pagan nations have been brought into Christ's kingdom. And those churches that bear the name Presbyterian have that uh, Scottish blood rather thoroughly in them. The first churches to be called Presbyterian were in Scotland. Okay, God's converted the pagan nations, us. And he continues to do so, no matter what your last name might be like. God continues to do so. You know, those Ethiopians in 600 AD thought that Europe was lost. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they thought they were the good Christian kingdom and nobody else was. Okay. Yeah, that was Ethiopia. All right. So, thanksgiving that the pagan nations, namely us, have been brought into Christ's kingdom. Third, prayer for the nations that persist in their rebellion against Jesus Christ. All right. Once we were rebels, how can we not treat the rebels with the same hope for mercy that God extended to us. Pray for the nations that persist in their rebellion against Christ. When St. Stephen died by the stones of a Jewish mob outside the eastern gate of Jerusalem, there was a man named Saul holding the cloaks of those who threw the stones and giving hearty approval. And a few lines later in the book of Acts, we read that he was breathing out threats and murder against the church of Jesus. Who would have thunk it that such a man would become the greatest missionary theologian in the history of the church? Who would have thought it? I was shown mercy, he says to Timothy. I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. God showed me mercy that I might be an example of the patience 
and the love that are in Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Pray for the nations. Pray for the people that persist in their rebellion against Christ. Pray for Vladimir Putin. Pray for the leaders of communist China. Pray for the emir of Saudi Arabia. Pray for those who persecute the church of Jesus. Fourth, pray for the welfare of our brothers and sisters who toil under persecution, under governments hostile to our Lord Jesus. I've known people who've been in prison because of their witness for Jesus. Maybe you have too. If you've not known them personally, you know of them or have read them or have heard them, uh, heard their testimonies. Pray for the welfare of our brothers and sisters who toil under persecution. The worst of that circumstance is probably North Korea today. The Saudis are not far behind. The Iranians, close to that too. Pray for our brothers and sisters who toil under persecution. And fifth, St. Paul says something difficult, but uh, also glorious in his letter to the Romans regarding the Jews. Regarding the Jews. And St. Paul sets forth in words that are debated as to their exact sense, but nonetheless clear in their general sense, that the Lord Jesus has not abandoned his own people, his own ethnicity, the Jews. St. Paul, twice in that letter to the Romans, says that he, he would rather wish that he were damned if it would mean the salvation of his own kinfolk, the Israelites. Romans 9.1, Romans 11.1, I'm sorry, Romans 9.1 and 11.1 both say that wish. I, I ardently wish... And in chapter 11, it's, it's, it's so wonderfully uh, terrifying, actually, that if, if it would save them, Paul says, I would be willing to go to hell. Paraphrasing. And by the end of chapter 11, in a, in a line that's much debated, and thus all Israel shall be saved. And a little bit later in that same paragraph, for God has consigned all people over to disobedience that he might have mercy upon them And here's the astonishing final word. Upon them all. And the all is Jew and Gentile in massive numbers. Paul says that those Jews are your enemies right now, very often, because of Christ. But because of the ancestors, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they are beloved for the calling and ele- sorry, for the for the gift of uh, uh, I'm sorry, the calling and election of God are without uh, what's the phrase uh, King James without repentance. No, uh, modern translations are irrevocable. Yeah, you know, the calling and election of God is irrevocable. It can never be taken away. There is some powerful sense, mysterious still, in which the Jewish people remains an elect people of God and shall be bundled somehow into the church of Jesus to make one people with all of us and all who have believed in all the ages. The details are hardly debated, and I'm not going to get into them today, but the promise seems clear that somehow the full number of the elect of Israel will come into the kingdom of God and join the full number of the Gentiles. 
I'm mystified by it. But the promise is clear. We should pray then for the Jews that they may be restored to their kinsmen, King David, (laughs) and restored to their greater kinsmen, King Jesus, and call God truly their father by adoption, by faith and repentance. What is the destiny of the world according to our text? Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Can anything in all of time and space and history and human will defy that destiny that's been determined by God the Father upon his heavenly throne? Nothing can defeat it. And so human life, how does it thrive? Only under the loyalty of the authority of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we address you as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, as our Savior, as our prophet, our priest, and our King. We address you because you've shown to us an amazing mercy a mercy beyond all bounds, a mercy that is, of course, never, ever deserved by us, but is entirely your gift, and you love to give it. Thank you, Lord, that you've given it to us and has called called us to a life of faith and repentance. You call the whole world to that salvation by the gospel that you ordained and for which you lived and for which you died and for which you rose again. You now live and reign at the right hand of the Father, ordering all things in such a way for your own glory and the good of the church. For these things, Lord, we praise and thank you. And we praise and thank you that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor our own continued fallenness. None of these things can do that. So bless us this day, Lord, with an astonishing confidence in Jesus Christ. And bless, Lord, your world, the nations, the rebels, the Jews, with this good and holy response of faith and repentance. Strengthen us, Lord, in the same. And may we live out that fact, that reality, with greater joy day by day until the hour of our death, and then an unimpeded joy in all the everlasting days that are yet to come in the fullness of your holy kingdom. Hear our prayer. And if any in this space today do not yet know you, Lord, work in their heart in such a way that they respond in faith this very day. Hear us, Lord, as we pray humbly, and as we pray nonetheless with confidence in your astonishing grace. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray it. Amen.